God what a privilege it is to gather together to give worship to Him this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2. Now this morning we come to a text that puts God's grace in the salvation of sinners on clear display. Uh, my hope is that in setting this text before you, uh, that you will that we can make much of God's grace, because that's exactly what Paul was doing in this portion of his letter. As we look intently at God's Word, and as His Spirit gives us insight, my hope is that we will really be in awe of God's grace, uh, that you will be compelled to meditate upon God's grace and delight in it, and that as you both meditate and as you uh, as you delight in, in God's grace, that, that God would be glorified in all of that. I titled this morning's sermon, Grace, Grace, God's Grace, uh, because as I was reading and studying this passage this past week, uh, the words from grace greater than our sin kept coming to mind. And I'm so thankful uh, that Steve was actually taking song requests this week. That helped out quite a bit. Um, but I was really blown away just with the, the lyrics of this hymn. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. What a delightful truth to set our hearts and our minds on this morning. Uh, you'll note in your bulletins there that uh, the passage that we're looking at this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 4 to 7, uh, but I want to invite you to read all the way from verse 1 through verse 10 with me. As Paul wrote these 10 verses in Ephesians, again, he didn't write 10 separate verses. There was one cohesive thought that he was expressing. We, want, we don't want to pull that out of context and make some sort of pretext out of it. We want to see it in the context in which it was written, so we're going to read through uh, verses 1 through 10. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the inerrant word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was Victorian England's most well-known Baptist preacher. By God's grace, he was saved and at an early age, and he actually began preaching 
when he was only 15 years old. By the time he was 19, uh, there was a church in London, a New Park Street Church, the biggest church, the biggest Baptist church in all of London. They invited him to come and, and be their pastor at age 19. Uh, that church grew under Charles Spurgeon's preaching and certainly under the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, from time to time, they had to continue to move and build bigger and bigger churches to fit the congregation in it. And today, Spurgeon is often referred to as the, the Prince of Preachers. Uh, I'm sure it's a title that he would have scoffed at it had he heard it. But when Spurgeon set this same text uh, before his congregation, he seemed to be overwhelmed with the profundity of this passage. Listen to his words. He said, This morning I have a text before me which is a great deal too full for me. I can never draw out all its supplies. I have gone around the walls of this city text. I have counted its towers and marked its bulwarks, and I am utterly unable to express myself by reason of joyous astonishment. I feel as if I must sit down and, and lose myself in adoration. I am a poor, dumb dog over such a theme. Well, after studying this past week, after really prayerfully uh, spending so much time in this passage, I know exactly how Spurgeon felt, uh, especially that dumb dog part. Uh, well, thus far in our studies in the book of Ephesians, uh, we've encountered some incredible theological truth together. Paul started this letter by reminding the Ephesian believers of all of the blessings which there are theirs in Christ. Now, these blessings include their election, which took place before God even created the world. He reminded them of their adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And he told them of their redemption, which was purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross, and that because of his finished work on that cross, that believers in Jesus have forgiveness of sins. Paul also wrote of the inheritance that belongs to believers in Christ, along with the blessing of being sealed by the Holy Spirit of God who has been given to them as a guarantee of that inheritance. All of these blessings are by the riches of God's grace which he lavished upon all believers. After reminding the Ephesians of all these blessings which are theirs in Christ, Paul then went on to tell them how he was praying for them and even shared with them the contents of some of his prayers. He wanted them to, to know the hope to which they had been called. He said that he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. And he wanted them to know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward us who believe. Paul said that God's immeasurably great power was most clearly seen in the resurrection, in the ascension, in the session of Jesus. Because of what Paul had written in the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, we who are living today now have a better understanding of the glories of God's grace and toward those who have been saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In my most recent sermon, we focused on the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, where we learned about the reality of our need for salvation because of sin. Without pulling any punches, without mixing any words, Paul painted for us a very, very bleak picture. He, he painted a picture of the human condition apart from Christ. It was a bleak picture. It, it was a picture marked by darkness and by hopelessness. In verses 1 to 3, we saw that man is spiritually dead in sin. 
Man is under the control of Satan. Man seeks to gratify the, the passions of his flesh rather than trying to please God in any way, shape, or form. By our very nature, we are children of wrath. That doesn't mean that we're angry and wrathful little kids. Well, that might be the case, but what, what Paul was talking about there is that we, by our nature, are, are under God's wrath. We need to be saved from God's wrath. Apart from Christ, man is hopeless and desperately wicked. All of this because of sin, which is pervasive in all of mankind. This is what we refer to as man's total depravity. And with that darkness serving as the backdrop, uh, we now get to see more clearly the glories and the beauty of the passage which is before us this morning. Let's look again, Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And before we take a detailed look at, at what Paul did say, I think it might be helpful to, to make note of what he didn't say. Now look at the pronouns at, at, in the first three verses of this chapter. Paul started by saying, you were dead. You once walked in trespasses and sins. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. But in verse 4, Paul didn't say, but you, being more clever than others around you, and because of the cleverness in which you are clever, you made the right choice and, and made yourself alive together with Christ. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, but you, because you're not as bad as your neighbor and you're certainly no Hitler and because you donated those items to the local elementary school, you have earned enough merit to warrant salvation. No, Paul didn't say any of that. When Paul started talking about salvation, he completely changed the subject. You and we were the subjects of the first three verses. But God is the subject of this next portion of Paul's letter in which he explains the nature of salvation. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the entire gospel can be summarized in those two words. But God. R.C. Sproul said that his very favorite word in all of the scriptures is that first word in, in verse 4. But you were once dead, but God. You all once walked in trespasses and sins, but God. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, but God. We were all children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. You were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but God. What Paul is writing about in this passage is, is divine intervention. It's divine initiative into the work of salvation. It shows God's sovereignty over all of salvation. It's the only hope for sinners like you and like me. In writing the, the four verses that are before us this morning, it's clear that Paul wanted his readers to know who God is. 
uh, to remember who we were and to embrace what God has done. And these will serve as the, the main points of our sermon outline this morning. So if you're taking notes, point number one will be know who God is. Under the inspiration of this Holy Spirit, Paul was writing these things so that the readers of his letter would know who God is. The God of the Bible has revealed himself to his creation. In Romans 1, 18 and 20, Paul teaches that God's invisible attributes, uh, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. This is what we refer to as, as general revelation. God has created the world and, and everything in it in such a way that the reality of his existence is, is evident to those who have eyes to see. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God has re- also re- revealed himself to mankind in a more intimate way. According to Romans 2.14 and 15, God has written his law on the hearts of his image bearers, on the hearts of mankind. This is why all of mankind is in agreement that things like murder are wrong. Even those who have never been exposed to Judaism or to Christianity, they know that thou shall not murder. Uh, They didn't figure this out after billions of years of evolution and, and conclude that murdering is bad for society, so therefore it is wrong. No, man knows instinctively because of what God has written on their hearts that that murder is wrong. There's another way in which God has revealed himself to us, and that's referred to as special revelation. Listen to the words of Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God has revealed himself to us more clearly in his word, in the capital W word, becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. If we endeavor to know who God is, the study of his special revelation is, has to take priority. We do not see the exact imprint of God in, in the things that he created around us, but we do see it in Jesus Christ. Jesus taught his disciples that if they had seen him, that they had seen the Father. And because God has revealed himself to us in his creation, uh, in our own hearts, in his word, and in his son, we can accurately conclude that God wants us to know him. He created us to be in communion with him. And in the word that's before us this morning, Ephesians 2, 4-7, we see that God has revealed to us certain truths about himself. First, we see that God is rich in mercy. That's really good news, isn't it? And particularly in light of those first three verses that we read in Ephesians 2. The word that God use, or Paul uses here in verse 4, which is translated as mercy, describes God as having deep compassion for mankind. Uh, so that he demonstrates goodness to those in, in pitiable and miserable condition. And such were we. Mercy is necessary because we have accrued a sin debt that we could never, ever repay. Not in a thousand lifetimes could we repay this debt. In light of our sin against the God who is holy, 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 a God who is defined by perfect justice. The only thing that we should anticipate is God's wrath. And the only thing that we could possibly hope for 
is God's mercy. Like Isaiah, having been given a glimpse of the Lord seated on a throne, and we cry out, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Like the tax collector in Jesus' parable recorded in Luke 18, all we can do is beat our chest, not even looking up and crying out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Part of the good news of Ephesians 2.4 is that not only is God merciful, but he is rich in mercy. God has an unending storehouse of mercy. And were that not true, we would be without hope. Secondly, in verse 4, we also see that God has loved us with a great love. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, the motivation of God's mercy is God's great love. And God's love is the driving force behind God extending mercy to undeserving sinners. He is merciful because he is loving. And certainly no shortage of passages that we could look at to examine God's love. But for the sake of brevity and hopefully for clarity as well, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. It's hard to find a stopping point in this passage, but we'll just look at those six verses. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and has sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The defining demonstration of God's love, according to his word, is that he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. God defines love not as us having loved him, but as him loving us and sending his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction, uh, the atoning sacrifice on our part. It's the forgiveness of sinners that we can see best. Uh, It's in that forgiveness that we can best see the greatness of God's love. This is the gospel. Uh, Christ died in our place that we might live through him. And we'll see in a few minutes that he did this while we were still sinners. Let's get back to Ephesians chapter 2. So far we've seen that in verse 4, that God is rich in mercy and that he loves with a great love. Now let's skip down to verse 7, where it says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In describing God's mercy, Paul said that God is rich in mercy. In describing the love with which God loved us, Paul said that God's love is, is great. Now in describing God's grace, it seems that Paul's run out of adjectives, and he could only say that his grace is marked by immeasurable greatness. This is the same term that he used to describe God's power back in Ephesians 1, 19. 
Speaking of God's grace, Charles Spurgeon once said, you cannot sin so much as God can forgive. If it comes to a pitched battle between sin and grace, you shall not be as bad as God is good. Spurgeon was not challenging, challenging his church to, to run out and sin as much as they possibly could just to see if, if God's grace was greater. No, and what he was trying to say was that God has immeasurable riches when it comes to grace. Now, mankind cannot exhaust God's grace. There is no wretch that is beyond the, the reach of God's saving grace. God welcomes and saves the weakest and the vilest of sinners. His grace is not limited to so that we would somehow have to get ourselves cleaned up enough to receive just a small measure of his grace. No, his grace is immeasurable. By his grace, God reaches down deep and pulls sinners out of the domain of darkness and transfers them over into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Ephesians 2, 7, Paul pairs both God's grace and God's kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. They go hand in hand. God demonstrates his mercy, his love, his grace, and his kindness toward us all in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Titus 3, verses 4 to 7, is also another helpful passage so we can see how the triune God demonstrates his love toward those who believe. Titus 3, starting at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. These words are they're very simple words, uh, but the depth that they convey is absolutely profound. Uh, it's enough to strike us dumb, to make us feel like dumb dogs. They're, they're simple words, but they're profound concepts. God is rich in mercy. God loved us with a great love. The riches of God's grace are immeasurable. God shows kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. These truths become even more dumbfounding and, and even more awe-inspiring as we remember who we were. That's point number two, remember who we were. Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time reminding the Ephesians who they were apart from Christ, but he didn't really need to, especially in light of those first three verses in the chapter. We see these words in, in verse 5 even when we were dead in our trespasses. So in the midst of teaching the Ephesians about divine intervention uh, and God's initiative in salvation, in the midst of explaining the mercy and love and grace and kindness of God, Paul goes back to the truth that he shared with them at the beginning of the chapter. You were dead. He doesn't do this in order to take the Ephesians down a notch. He's not, I don't think it was in his intention to do harm to their either individual or collective egos. Instead, I think that in, in reminding the Ephesians that they were dead, he, he's really magnifying God. He is exalting God even higher and higher. Remembering who we were before God saved us should result in a, a deeper love for God and a, and a greater worship of him. We were objects of wrath, but God 
motivated by the great love with which he loved us, had mercy on us, and he extended his saving grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. John Stott says that Christians are sometimes criticized for for being morbidly uh, preoccupied with their sin and with their guilt. Uh, I've received that same criticism myself. Uh, But this criticism really isn't fair uh, when we're facing the facts about ourselves. Uh, It's never an unhealthy thing to look at reality in the face and then to move on to bask and to glory in God's saving grace, in his mercy, in his kindness. That seems to be exactly the motivation behind Paul's quick reminder in verse 5. As you think about God's mercy and love, remember that he demonstrated that, that mercy and that love while you were still sinners, while you were dead in your trespasses. Remembering, remembering who we were magnifies the glories of God. It magnifies the glories of his initiative in salvation. And it has the added bonus of keeping us humble. And that seems to be the case for Paul. Notice the pronoun switch from verse 1 to verse 5. So in Ephesians 2, 1, he said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But then in verse 5, he says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Paul included himself in those who were dead. No doubt Paul remembered who he was before God saved him. And it's in that remembrance that he would say that he was the foremost of all sinners and that he was the least of all the apostles. It's helpful for us to remember who we were. It's helpful to remind ourselves of of our unworthiness, not our worthlessness, but our unworthiness. It's only helpful in as much as it causes us to glory, though, and and to, to really bask in God's grace all the more. Remembering who we were gives us the proper lenses through which we can begin to see the riches of God's grace, his mercy, the greatness of his love for us, and the immeasurable riches of that grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Remembering who we were not only gives us a greater insight into who God is, but it helps us to embrace what God has done. And that's our third and final point in our sermon outline. Embrace what God has done. There are times when the words we have at our disposal are are seemingly inadequate. So we make up new words. Think about the word ginormous. Once upon a time, that wasn't a word, but now it's in the dictionary. Last year, dictionary.com added uh, more than 300 new words. Uh, Words like yeet and and zaddy. I have no idea what they mean. if you want to know, come up to the youth group after, uh, during the Bible study hour, and I'm sure they can tell you what it means. <laughs> yeah, new words are, are, and phrases are, are coined all the time. I think about in 2020, at the beginning of 2020, how many of us have ever heard of the term social distancing? Right? And now we can't distance ourselves enough from social distancing. Uh, language is changing all the time. Well, as Paul was explaining to the Ephesians uh, the work of God in salvation, he invented three new Greek words uh, to describe what God has done in the act of saving sinners. And he did this by taking existing Greek words and, and then adding the prefix sin, S-Y-N, which means together with. And we see that in, first in verse 5, immediately following his reminder that we were dead in our trespasses. Uh, Paul says that the God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive 
together with Christ. Paul took the word to make alive, and he added that prefix sin, which means together with, and he created this new word to, to describe for his readers and help them to understand that it is with Christ that we have this newness of life. We who were dead have been made alive, but the new life that we have is a life that is together with Christ alone. Apart from Christ, we remain dead. We remain dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked or continue to walk if we are apart from Christ. But God, God has made us alive together with Christ. Look down to verse 6 where it says that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul was coining new terms to describe the work of God in salvation. First, he made us alive together with Christ. Second, he raised us up with him. Third, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. These three new verbs refer back to the historical events of what John Stott calls the saving career of Jesus. They refer to those events that we call the resurrection, the ascension, and the session of Jesus. What's remarkable is that in explaining what God has done in saving sinners by his grace, God, uh, uh, Paul was not affirming that God quickened, raised, and seated Jesus, but that God quickened, raised, and seated us with Jesus. In saving sinners, God has inextricably connected us with Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian isn't about perfect church attendance. Being a Christian isn't about trying to attain a higher level of morality. Being a Christian isn't submitting yourself to a list of do's and do nots. Being a Christian is about being in Christ, about being with Christ. By virtue of our union with Christ, by virtue of our abiding in him, by virtue of our salvation, which we received by grace through faith in Jesus, we actually share in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his session. The depths of this truth are, are so profound, uh, they're so deep that we could truly spend a lifetime trying to search this out. And I think this is the part of, of Spurgeon's quote, the dumb dog part, where it really starts to take hold. As we seek to embrace what God has done for us in saving us, we're left uh, really in an awestruck wonder. How is it that we, who have been saved and made alive in Christ, are also risen with him and seated with him in the heavenly places? I believe there are a couple of ways in which this is true. Uh, first, it has to do with our, our unity in Christ. Before his crucifixion, Jesus was praying to the Father, and he prayed for this type of unity between himself and between those who would follow him. It's recorded in John chapter 17, an incredible prayer. In John 17, 20, verses, uh, verses 20 to 23, Jesus says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples. I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
and so that the word or so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me i have given to them that they may be one even as we are one i in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me because christ is in us because we are abiding in him it can be said of us that we have been made alive with Christ, that we have been raised up with Christ, that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I think there's also an, an already not yet uh, aspect to all of this. Uh, we've seen something similar in, back in Ephesians 1. In verse 11, Paul writes that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. And then just a few verses later in verse 14, Paul's writing, he says, uh, writing about the Holy Spirit, he says that uh, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it uh, to the praise of his glory. So we have already obtained an inheritance, but we have not yet acquired possession of it because it's being kept undefiled for us in heaven. I think the same thing can be said of the work of God in our salvation. We were spiritually dead, and he has made us alive together with Christ. And here we are in Makakilo. But because of our unity with Christ, Paul can say of us that we are actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Though we're not there yet physically, we are already with him in the heavenlies. And the promise of our resurrection after experiencing physical death is so secure in Christ that Paul could say that even now we're raised with Christ and seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, in order to, to fully embrace what God has done by saving us, it's, it's helpful to understand why it is he did what he did. We're not always given the, the why answers in the scriptures, but in this passage we are. Look down to uh, Ephesians 2, verse 7 again. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's purpose in saving sinners is for his glory, and so that he would be glorified in our salvation. In the coming ages, uh, that's speaking about when Christ returns, talks about when we'll, we'll have our glorified bodies. In that time, God will be displaying us as trophies of his grace. We'll be on display. God will receive glory because what he has done in us when the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, fell to the Union forces, it marked the end of a long and, and bloody civil war in our country. In the days following, there was draped across the U.S. Capitol building a ginormous banner uh, with the words of Psalm 118, uh, verse 23, written on it. These simple words, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our sight or in our eyes. In the ages to come, the heavenly host will be able to point to us and glorify God and say, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Well, we've covered quite a bit in just a, a few short minutes, uh, yet we've only begun to really scratch the, the surface of the glory of this passage. 
The reality is that we need this truth. Uh, this is life-giving truth. This is truly life-transforming truth. As we grow in our knowledge of who God is, our worship of Him should be increasing exponentially. When we, we remember who we were, the helplessness, the, the hopelessness of our estate before God stepped in, our praise and our adoration of our Savior should increase all the more. When we embrace all that God has done in mercifully and graciously extending His saving grace to us, we should praise and glorify Him all the more. God gets the glory for our salvation because it is God who did the work of salvation. H.B. Charles tells a story of a young man who wanted to become a member of a church, and so he met with the deacons, and um, they wanted to test and, and find out, was he truly a, a born-again believer? And he said, sure, I'm a believer. He said, I did my part, and God did his part. And I said, oh, well, we're going to have to dig a little deeper here. His theology sounds like it might be a little bit off. And so they asked him, they pressed him on that, and they said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, my part was the sinning, God's part was the saving, right? His theology was far better than they had even imagined. Well, if, if you are not a believer in Christ, uh, you might be asking, how is it then uh, that you can be saved? Uh, if this is all a part of God's work, what can you do to be saved? And if that's the case, if you're asking that question, I'm really glad that you are. Uh, you can be saved by turning from sin and putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's what we call repentance and belief. You turn from sin and you turn to Jesus and you believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. This is repentance and belief. If you're in, in this building uh, or on the lanai, um, by God's grace, you don't have to look far to find somebody who has been saved by God's grace. I would encourage you, talk to them about it. You can talk to me, talk to any of these that you know are Christians. Ask them about this. You know, if you're listening online or watching online, I would encourage you just to get in touch with us on, on the church website. We'd love to minister to you. We'd love to do what we can to help you in your pursuit of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father God, you are both the author and perfecter of our faith. I thank you for revealing to us the truth about who you are and about what you have done. You are a God who is rich in mercy. You are a God who loves with a great love. You are a God who has immeasurably great riches of grace and kindness. You are just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For those who do not have faith in Jesus, I ask that you would extend your saving grace to them by granting them repentance and belief, even this morning. And for those whom you have already saved by your grace, I ask that you would give them opportunities and utterance to share the good news about Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. And Father God, glorify yourself in and through your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.